The Jewish views on the American presidential race. Is Republican nominee Donald Trump right to question Israel's safety should the Democrats get in again? Go London walking tours. Blue badge guide Rachel Kolsky tells us about her latest walks. And we meet two women hoping to change the lives of those living on the streets through sandwiches and song. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Hundreds of people have signed an online petition asking the British government to ban a rabbi who claims that Down syndrome and autism are punishments for sins in a previous life. Rabbi Yosef Mizraki is due here on the 16th of September. He's been told by leading figures of British Jewry, who call him a hate preacher, that he's not welcome. It's not clear whether the Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, will ban Mizraki, which he has the power to do if his visit is seen as not conducive to the public good. The MP Naz Shah, who was suspended from the Labour Party for anti-Semitic comments that she posted on social media, is being investigated by police. Ms Shah was readmitted to the party in July, but it's now being reported that she could be charged with inciting religious hatred. The investigation by West Yorkshire Police is reported to be in its final stages. In the United States, the Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump said last year's nuclear deal with Iran will destroy Israel if he's not elected in November. Mr Trump has previously said it was a bad deal and that he would consult with his national security advisers on what to do about it if he becomes president. He's blamed Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama for empowering Iran. But Mrs Clinton's running mate, Senator Tim Kaine, defended the deal, saying it had put a lid on Iran's nuclear programme. He added that the Democrats had no idea how Donald Trump would handle Iran, and neither did Mr. Trump himself. A campaign calling itself Decision at 50 wants the Israeli government to hold a referendum on the future of the West Bank on the 50th anniversary of its capture. The granddaughter of Yitzhak Rabin, the former prime minister who was assassinated in 1995, has joined a group of ex-Israeli military and government officials who are asking where Israel is heading on such a crucial question for the future of the country. The campaign has requested a meeting with Benjamin Netanyahu. And finally, the under-fire retail billionaire Sir Philip Green had his superyacht Lionheart renamed BHS Destroyer in a prank by the comedian Lee Nelson. The TV star, whose real name is Simon Brodkin, sailed up to the luxury vessel, which is reportedly worth £100 million, and hung up the sign very visibly on the side. That's the news. Now over to Andrew for the sport. Thanks, Viv. Israel's 2018 World Cup qualifying campaign got off to a losing start after they were beaten 3-1 by Italy in Haifa. However, despite the defeat, manager Elisha Levy said, we can take some positives from the match. Besides the result, which was bad, everything that happened, we wanted. Israel's next game is away at Macedonia on October 6th. Israeli interest at this year's US Open will continue into the last few days of the tournament after Yishay Oliel reached the third round of both the junior boys singles and doubles competitions. The 16-year-old is enjoying his first ever appearance at Flushing Meadows and comes into the tournament having won the junior doubles title at the French Open back in June. And finally, the Jewish Football League season gets underway this weekend with a Premier Division clash between champions North London Raiders A and Redbridge A being the highlight of the opening day fixtures. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest from the world of Jewish sport at www. 
jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to review the paper is editor Richard Ferrer and supplements editor Bridget Grant. Welcome to you both. Richard, as ever, I suppose we have to start off with the front page, split in two parts. So shall we start off with the rather grabbing headline of Rabbi of Hate? Yeah, it's not just other faiths that have their dodgy pre- preachers. Judaism has uh, its dodgy preachers too. We have splashed on, as you said, Rabbi of Hate, a gentleman called Yosef Mizrahi, who's a US-based rabbi who, get this, claims that sick children are being punished for their sins in a former life, says that fewer than one million halachic, quote, halachic Jews were killed in the Holocaust. So obviously a lot of this very sickening, unpleasant stuff, anyone who's a parent or otherwise will obviously balk at this man's worldview and his opinions. The chief rabbi has come out and uh, said he's not welcome here. 600 people have signed a petition calling for him not to come to the country. He apparently is still coming, although that's clouded in, in some confusion at the moment. There was actually an event planned on his website where he said he was going to come. That mysteriously vanished. He's now said if he does come, it will be a private affair in a private house and it won't be an organization that's backing him to come but quite clearly this isn't somebody i think that we want involved in our community you see the problem is this feels like a little bit of a strange kind of dichotomy if you will because the problem is with someone such as a rabbi i've always i'm sure we've all been brought up to say that one always respects a rabbi irrespective of however religious they are however when you start sort of teetering on the brink of religiosity taking over from common sense or good grace or just common decency i guess it becomes quite hard to respect someone even if they are a rabbi don't you think bridget totally i mean you know we looked at them for leadership and kind words and to support people in times of sorrow and at times obviously when they're going through the hardship of on the difficulties of having a child that may be Down syndrome, may be born blind, which are all the sort of children that he's referring to. And what I, I think is interesting, though, is that as a religious man, it would be my understanding that he wouldn't believe in a past life as such because Orthodox Jews, as I understand it, don't believe in reincarnation. But that's what struck me about this story as well, because when I read it before we started recording this edition of The Jewish Views, I too also was under the impression that Jews aren't supposed to believe in reincarnation. I always thought that belonged to other religions. However, I'm sure we can find out more because this very subject is going to be discussed later on in the programme in our schmooze, and I'm sure Rabbi Andrew Shaw will have something to say about it as well. Also on the front page, the Paralympics, which almost, again, seems a bit of a strange comparison to put on with this rabbi of hate because he would, one would assume, probably be referring to some of the Paralympians who, of course, do great work and great achievements. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think it's marvellous that Richard has decided to put both stories on the front this way because what great representatives they are of people who are born with horrible, horrible things they have to face in their life and overcome it, go on to great victory in the Paralympics and we will be supporting them all the way. 
So we have the immoral views of a rabbi below and then the inspiring, as you say, achievements of these amazing Paralympic athletes. Moran Samuel, who's a world champion rower, she's actually the favourite to win gold in her classification. And a Paralympic swimmer called Inbal Pizarro, who's also hopefully tipped for gold for Israel. They've won 380 medals, the Israelis, in the Paralympics since 1960. So uh, let's hope they can add a few more. It's also worth noting, I think, that the Paralympics was launched by Ludwig Guntman, a Jew here in Britain, in Stoke Mandeville in 1948. And now it's become this world-renowned international event that takes place every four years alongside the Olympics themselves. So there's a lot to cheer and uh, fingers crossed to all the athletes in the coming days. Absolutely. And of course, um, for me, whenever I hear Mandeville, which of course is Stoke Mandeville Hospital that you refer to, where the Paralympic Games were launched, I always just have this long-lasting image now of, do you remember those little figurines, those little caricatures that were part of London 2012? And there was Wenlock and Mandeville was the other one. So, of course, now I've just got this image of a short sort of tubby thing with spiky hair. Who'd have thought it? Anyway, elsewhere in the paper, we go to page eight now, and another inspirational figure, Yehuda Bauer, has been to the UK. Yep. Anyone lucky enough, I think, to be at JW3 this week would have seen an extraordinary, inspirational, wise man. I unfortunately wasn't able to get there, but luckily some very, very generous person in the audience was holding up their camera and they were streaming it on Facebook. So I was supposed to be watching Hairy Bikers, but in the end, I just couldn't tear myself away from this wonderful Israel's leading Holocaust historian who went through so many fascinating issues in the most articulate way possible. He was talking about BDS, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement, calling it an absolute failure. He came up with a fascinating figure. Since the BDS movement was launched, £300 billion, that's an extraordinary figure, has been invested in Israel. He was talking about anti-Semitism, when is anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, where they linked. He was talking about Ken Livingston and his awful Hitler slur. It was a wide-ranging discussion with the Labour MP Tulip Sadiq at JW3. He was also on Radio 4. He did a subsequent event the following day. Absolutely inspiring man. If, if any of our listeners care to, go on YouTube and listen to some of his lectures. 90 years old and, and has the, the wisdom and the knowledge that's pretty much unparalleled, I think. Sounds pretty incredible to me. Okay, well, someone else who is probably very incredible to speak to as well, Bridget, was Danny Rubin, of course, the writer of Groundhog Day. You've been to meet him. Well, yes, it was, uh, I have to say, it was set up quite some time ago because those who know about Groundhog Day, which uh, the musical, let's not confuse it with the film, the musical. Is it coming back again? Well, it's, it, oh, very, oh. See what I did every, Yes, it's, yeah. it's waiting. I, I led you right into that. But it, it has, the film itself, which is, what, 27, 28 years old, has been turned into a musical by Tim Minchin, who wrote Matilda, of course, and directed by Matthew Walker's who they've brought it to the old Vic. If you were lucky enough to see it, and I know that Richard saw it as well, so I know big fans, both of us, incredible, incredible adaptation of the film into an extraordinary musical. And of course, Danny Rubin, who wrote the original film, he was part of the whole process and was blown away by it as much as I think the audience was because... I don't know how familiar everybody is with Tim Minchin's work. If you've seen Matilda, you know he's an incredible lyricist. And 
what you get with Groundhog Day is exactly that. Songs, I mean, I know Richard, for one, is absolutely desperate, desperate to hear the soundtrack again. Unfortunately, those who wanted to buy it at the end of the show realised very quickly that it was a very short run at the Old Vic. Danny Rubin taught script writing and wrote a few comedy shows in America, not big ones, and Groundhog Day was his debut he's never sought to match it really which is interesting he doesn't he lives in santa fe and doesn't feel like the sort of person who wants to be wildly prolific in terms of his output he's quite content you know he just wanted to make his mark he's very happy living an artist's life in santa fe and he does teach script writing but the privilege of working with tim minchin as i'm sure any single writer on the planet uh, wouldn't you give your eye teeth to do that, Richard? Yeah, he's a, a, a maestro, Tim Minchin. He is an absolute legend of musical theatre. He is, I think, repairing classic by classic all the things that Andrew Lloyd Webber has done to ruin musicals. <gasps> I t- in, oh, good in, gracious oh, me. No. In the Hang eyes of so many. That is so not Hang fair. on just a second. I, I don't think we can allow that, surely. It's two against one, Phantom honestly. Phantom of the Opera. I Jesus walked out Christ, halfway through. Jesus Christ Superstar, which I saw yeah, at the open air theatre. Which opened the day after Jesus died. He hasn't done anything in the last 40 years, has he? Wow. Okay, Cats. before you get you and us into Cats. trouble, Mr Ferrer, no more from that. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> right, let's end on a... Well, I would say a positive note, but it's not positive note at all, really. It's to do with Lou Roll. I love this story. I think it's in, it's just brilliant. Toilet paper. I could would say once used by the Nazis, but presumably well, one would assume not. Uh, yeah, we not, hope the, not, not this anyway. particular not this particular batch um, is going up for auction. What is what strikes me about this story is remarkable is a that they did branded toilet paper for the Nazis, and it makes you wonder whether there are other groups, similar groups, branding their own toilet paper. But who has the foresight to hold on to a batch of kind of toilet paper and think that down the line there is a possibility of selling it or having it auctioned in an auction house potentially getting about £100 for it? The worrying part is it might get more, it might raise more, might Richard, I think. What confuses me is I went to school in the 70s and 80s when we had, not to put too fine a point on it, tracing paper. Yeah, hideous. Right. And, and this looks like three-ply stuff. I mean, this looks like this is years, decades before, and, and, and they were clearly privy to some really nice, luxurious stuff. And then it, it seems like, you know, as the years went by, I don't know, innovation in toilet paper has just gone down the pan. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. That's where we have to leave it for the paper review for this week. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. As you heard in the news just now with Viv, Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump said last year's nuclear deal with Iran will destroy Israel if he's not elected in November. We also learned this week that a new poll has suggested that Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton is the preferred nominee in Israel. To weigh up just how both candidates could help or hinder Israel's mere existence is Dr. Lenny Crystal, chair of the Middle East Strategy Committee on the Jewish Community Relations Council. Well, Dr. Lenny, I suppose that we've got to start with the question, is there any truth in what Donald Trump has said? Could Israel really be in danger of not even existing should he not be elected come November? Well, I think that's uh, stretching 
the truth beyond all imagination. This is not to say that Donald Trump speaks very often in a very loose way, in a random way, in many respects. But no, I don't think there's any chance of that. I think he often has a tendency to message what he wants to say, telegraph what he wants to say, in ways and means that when you start to pass his words, it looks quite ridiculous. And that's not to say that he doesn't believe he's the better candidate for Israel. I think what he really was referring to there clearly was the nuclear Iran deal, because basically he believes that Hillary, and has made this point uh, over and over again, that Hillary was a very strong supporter of the nuclear deal, and he spoke out against it. And he's uh, often maintained that he would immediately revoke that deal. He, he never says why or how, but he says he would revoke that deal, which would be in Israel's interests, whereas he sees uh, his opponent as happily signing on and letting it run its full course, ultimately leading to the potential of a nuclear bomb. And in that respect, he might see Israel's future in some sort of existential danger. So whilst he might see in the longer term, if Iran is able to get the bomb in due course, 10, 12, 15 years, at that point, the real danger would kick in for Israel. And hence, he telegraphs his words by saying, Israel will be at risk and, and may not exist anymore. You see, it's quite a bizarre situation, I suppose, that worldwide jury finds itself in because typically speaking, nearly every single, to the best of my knowledge, and I'm sure to many others' knowledge as well, American presidents have been great believers and great friends of Israel. And yet, although I don't deny that Barack Obama is a friend of Israel, at the same time, there's an awful lot of people who feel that he maybe isn't as much of a friend as maybe some of his predecessors have been. So could that be enough to put off American Jews for voting for the Democrats, of course, who they have typically always voted for? To be frank, I don't think that's going to be a big issue in this election. The election really, I think, is, is summed up in the following way. The economy always, most instances, the economy plays a major part. And clearly, the American economy is not yet back on track. Many of the critics of the government would say that it's been a very sluggish performance, that the, the growth rate in the economy not really moving much beyond the 1.5% needle over the years has been uh, appalling. And therefore, it's their pocketbook that's going to count to a large degree. What also is important is a real disgruntlement, as you probably know, with government in Washington, which it sees as completely broken and ineffective. So to a very large extent, Trump and people who support him are riding on the crest of that particular wave. Whether it's going to be sufficient to put him in the White House is extremely debatable at this point. It's unpredictable. But I don't think President Obama's policies towards Israel will be a determining factor. Hillary is seen as someone who has been supportive of Obama's policies and will be the person who will be chosen to, as it were, prolong his legacy and ensure that Obama's legacy lives on by adopting his policies and in some instances moving them even further to the left of where Obama actually is politically. Although it's quite conceivable that if she's in power and she's in the White House, she may run from the center, as most presidents tend to do, 
in moving towards the middle. But I think that Trump and Hillary are really, as you well know, probably the most unpopular candidates in living memory. Their unfavorables are extraordinarily high. And many argue if this is the best that America could do to offer forward two candidates for the most important and powerful job in the world, then the country surely is in some sort of trouble. And is that the general feeling then? Certainly, say, perhaps amongst American Jewry. Do American Jews perhaps worry in the same way that maybe the global audience does? Because I think you've hit the nail on the head. An awful lot of people in this country as well are very much of the opinion, is this really the best that both the Republican and Democrat Party can offer to ultimately rule the world, one could argue, because the American president is no doubt about it one of the highest, if not the top political figure in the world. Well, I think one has to look at that question within the context of how American Jews tend to vote. And as you know, the overwhelming majority of American Jews tend to vote Democratic. Basically, the Democrats have relied on the Jewish vote, generally ranging from anywhere between 75 to even 80, 85 percent in years gone by. And there's no real reason to expect that to change this coming election. It is conceivable that I think many Jews, and I have to be careful with my words because I don't think we can actually generalize on this matter, but I think many Jews see Donald Trump as not being a suitable candidate for for president and somebody who'd in the course of the run-up to this election, in the primaries, has behaved in ways which run counter to, if you like, Jewish ethical teachings and the way that we would like to see people conduct themselves vis-a-vis others in our community as well as beyond and ordinary people anywhere in America. And Trump, part of his major appeal is that he says what he thinks and he thinks probably sometimes too fast and, and, and makes comments which he then historically hasn't really retracted, but nonetheless have been found to be offensive, as you well know, on a number of different counts. And Jews who tend to be liberal-minded in, in the United States and across the United States find that unpalatable. But there is a big unknown, and it's really fascinating, and I've never seen anything like this in politics before. It's unknown as to what actually is going to happen. There could be a Brexit effect in the United States. People are talking about that, that you don't want to actually admit publicly that you're going to vote for Donald Trump. But when you pull the lever, so to speak, in the, in the polling booth, you pull it for Trump. And it would be sort of unacceptable to indicate to anybody in the general forum or in public forum that you voted for Trump. But such is the dissatisfaction with the state of affairs that many people are not really being exactly candid in what they're thinking and how they're going to vote. And therefore, the polls have been all over the show. You see recent polls where the polls are definitely starting to close and tighten. And frankly, it's anybody's race at this point in time. We've still got two months to go, but a lot can happen. And I fear that, heaven forbid, if there's some kind of major terrorist attack on American soil, on home soil, then clearly pundits are talking about that fact actually helping Trump. Another factor, which is an unknown, of course, is whether Julian Assange is going to drop something down as a September or October surprise if he does indeed have material where some sort of smoking gun on the whole 
email fiasco and the Clinton Foundation comes to the fore. Although I have to say, too, that most Americans have made up their minds, I guess, on who they want to vote for. And it will really take something of cataclysmic proportions to get either Clinton or Trump supporters to change their mind at this stage. Dr. Lenny Crystal, chair of the Middle East Strategy Committee on the Jewish Community Relations Council. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to us today. It's very interesting that you hear Dr. Lenny there talking about how what Donald Trump says could be deemed as anti-Jewish teachings. Yes, at the same time, of course, reflecting on what he has said in this campaign to become the next president of the US, he has actually even said that, of course, anti-Semitism will not be allowed to anyone applying to become a citizen of the United States. Very, very interesting state of affairs. And I am sure we will see what happens as the weeks unfold. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and I will be joined by journalist Jenny Fraser and Rabbi Andrew Shaw, and we'll be asking to what extent can religious beliefs excuse someone's point of view, no matter how outlandish they might be. Plus, Diana Toman shall be speaking to Sarit Gafan and Jerry O'Regan about a song they've written to help the homeless. But first, I think it's a fair comment to say that Jewish Londoners boast a rich tapestry of history in our great capital. But how much of it do we really know? Well, we know that we're synonymous with areas such as Golders Green, Stamford Hill, East London. But when it comes to the fine detail, our next guest is definitely the person who can help with that. Rachel Kolsky is a qualified blue plaque guide who specialises in London's Jewish history. She hosts a series of walks through her company, Go London Tours. Kate Fulton has been speaking to Rachel to find out about her latest events. She started by asking Rachel how she first got into being a tour guide in the first place. Well, my career actually began as a librarian. So I'm a librarian and I do always say library is written through me like a stick of rock. I just adore libraries. But I worked in the financial services sector and for a time I was working in the city. And I had a couple of friends who were guides and they basically said to me, Rachel, you know, you work in the city, you love London, you love talking, you love walking. I think you should become a guide. And I said, yeah, but I'm very busy. I don't really have the time. Anyway, so a couple of my friends uh, continued to push me to do it. I started with the City of London guiding course, which meant that in my lunch times while I was working in the city, I could quickly nip out and do some recce's and research and visiting buildings I hadn't seen before. And so I started just guiding at weekends, maybe sometimes taking a day's leave to do a tour. But basically it was a hobby. It was a hobby. But I actually really rather enjoyed it. And so then I did the Clarkwell and Islington guiding course to explore North London. And then I decided to do the big course, the Blue Badge course, and which was quite a commitment, I have to say. And I did it while I was working full time. And the as Blue well. Badge is the one we all know. It's more famous it's, than Blue Peter Badge, isn't it, really? Or is it? <laughs> Don't know. But the Blue yes. Badge is what is what sort of every tour guide wants to wants to have. How long did that take yeah. you? It takes well over a year and it's very intensive. I mean, I have to say, I went, I went to college. And I think a lot of us who went to college said, we've never worked so hard. It's very, very intensive, you know, and you sort of lived and breathed the Blue Badge. It's about 13, 14 months, lots of exams, written and practical. And the only way you ever saw a friend 
or member of your family is if they came on a practice walk with you. So I'm really sorry. It'd be lovely to see you. But if you want to come and hear me speak about the British Museum, that's how you'll see me. So you did that. Well done. And then you somehow sort of morphed into Jewish guiding or guiding around Jewish areas of London. Yeah, well, that was really one of my first passions because well, I'm Jewish and I've always been interested in history, social history. I studied history at college and really the guiding and the Jewish heritage just melded into something I really, really enjoyed. I mean, I guide all over London, but my mission is to find a Jewish association wherever I am. So if I'm stuck in a traffic jam on a coach for 45 minutes, I will look around me and there's got to be a building with a Jewish connection somehow. So I, I'm always seeking out and I'm, I'm still finding so many new Jewish associations because around people London. Tend to think, people tend to think that... It's about the the stand and, you know, you think Stepney and you think Whitechapel and, you know, the old blooms and a bit around there and kind of you're done with the East End of Petticoat Lane. But you've recently discovered that there's a lot more. Oh, yes. The Jewish East End is very, very special. I mean, absolutely without a doubt. And I think the Jewish East End is much bigger than people always give it credit for. So when one goes around Brick Lane's Little Fields, the old site of Blooms, etc., you know, you could go further east to Mile End and Stepney, go south down towards Cable Street, you know, going to Bethnal Green. Then, of course, you've got Hackney in North London. And then you can go, yeah, you can go further afield. So you go north to Hackney, then you've got Dalston, go to the Jewish West End, you've got Soho, Fitzrovia. You know, there's no end. Hampstead, Swiss Cottage, Belsize Park. And then each area of London that you go to gives you a different element of what I call the Jewish journey within London. So absolutely. But, you know, you start with the city, don't forget, the city of London with medieval Jewish community. Go to the East End, you know, where it developed. And then you've got the late 19th century. And then the early Jewish community in the East End, when the Russian-Polish Jews came in, they needed to move out. The original settlers moved out, so a lot of them went up north to Hackney. Today you've got Stamford Hill, which is a fascinating area to explore in many ways. And then you've got Hampstead, which gives you the 1930s experience, because that's where a lot of the emigres escaping Nazi Europe went So each area of London, with their Jewish stories, gives you a different element of the Jewish London. And what about some of the specific walks? Where where do you start? Where do you go around? Give an example of a couple of those. Okay. Well, I, I always think for people exploring Jewish London, if it's their first walk, I always suggest the Jewish East Stand. I think the Jewish East Stand is just filled with so many images and so many memories. Plus, it's now got the added addition of Spitalfields Market, which has got you know places to eat and drink and frothy coffee and croissant, which, you know, when I was started guiding in the East End, none of that was available. So now people feel much more at ease thinking we can sit down at the end and have something nice to eat and drink. But once you've done your Jewish East End, which I always think is a good start, I think Jewish Hampstead is fantastic around Belsize Park and Swiss Cottage because you've got the wonderful generic story of the 1930s and the emigres coming over, but you've also got specifics of some amazingly famous and interesting people like Sigmund Freud and his family and, of course, Oscar Nemon, my favourite, my favourite sculptor, who also had to escape Nazi Europe. And then I've done a number of tours in Hackney. Hackney is, well, most people know now Hackney is very hip and trendy, but it had a very, very vibrant Jewish community, particularly in the 40s, 50s and 60s. It was incredibly Jewish then. And now that everybody's much more happy to go into Hackney, uh, because there's frothy coffee and croissant as well, I can do tours around Hackney Central and Dalston and bring through the Jewish stories and memories. One of my newer tours in Hackney is Clapton. Now, Clapton, of course, has had this reputation for years as being the murder mile. So it would have been a bit difficult to encourage people to book a tour 
to come to Murder Mile. But now it's getting very shishy because nobody can afford Hackney anymore. So they're all moving in into Clapton. And Clapton is lovely. And you've got the story of, you know, Leebridge Road Shawl. You know, for so many people, you don't have to go far in the Jewish community to talk to people and you'll find somebody that has a memory of Leebridge Road. And then, of course, Clapton borders onto Stamford Hill. And therefore, you get a totally different story then of the fast-growing Haredi community in Stamford Hill, which, if you're not part of that community, you typically don't go and explore the area. But I do, and, <laughs> I, and I find it absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And what sort of people come on your tours? How fit do they have to be? What age do you have Do you have um, of ages that tend to come? Yeah, well, I suppose if one's honest, a lot of people tend to be what we tend to call senior. But to be honest, I mean, years ago, people were called senior if they were... 60 and above but 60 is the new 40 so typically people who have time whenever day of the week my tours are programmed I'll have people that will say if it's midweek I'm really sorry I work if it's Sunday I'm sorry I'm with the grandchildren so I've just learned to you know whichever day you choose there's going to be somebody it doesn't work for but the tours are quite leisurely with lots of stops but then of course you do get people some people who can stand quite easily but find difficulty walking and there are people who can walk easily but have difficulty standing so we cover all bases i mean people bring you know these little shooting stick things that, oh, you the ones that open on. out into yeah. a little and, seat and that works well and the other thing is tour is is for the people that come along so we go at the pace of the slowest person so i'm known to be a fast walker i mean you don't have to go far, really to find something like oh rachel she walks so fast i am a fast walker but i stop regularly and my feeling about walking is that you should always be able to walk at your own pace if you're a fast walker, it's very difficult to walk slowly. And obviously, if you're a slow walker, it's very difficult to walk fast. So everybody ambles along at their own pace and we wait for everybody at each stop. And when we've got everybody together, then I do my little natter. Have a little story. Yeah. Do kids ever come along? Oh, yes, I've had kids. I have kids. I have bicycles. I have dogs. You know, anything. Anything that people really want to bring. I think I've had scooters every so often. You know, whatever people want to bring. Do you have... As long as it's not dangerous absolutely. or illegal, they can bring it. Do you have a, a set of tours that you, you, you do or do people have to book a tour? Or do you say, this is what I'm doing and if you want to come along, this is the date? Most of my tours are private tours. so More bespoke. Um, yeah, bespoke. So it'll be like for a social group or a family group and they will choose the tour they want and then I can make sure I, we all meet where they want to meet, we can end where they want to end. If it's a family group, what we often do, and it's really, really lovely for me, is the family, maybe it's honour of a birthday or a grandma or a grandma, they send me addresses and buildings and places that oh, are part of the memories so it's really bespoke. and then what I do is I I spec it out on a map and I see I see if I can make a nice little tour of it you know because sometimes some of the buildings are still there I mean we had the most I had the most amazing experience a few years ago it was a, a family from Israel the grandma had been born brought up in the east end she'd gone to live in Israel so her children grandchildren is really and she wanted to come and show them her roots so we put together this route and everything and we were going down the commercial road where her grandparents lived and she said oh Rachel I'd love to see where my grandparents lived well I knew where the address was I'd specked it out she said I'd be loved to go inside I said well they're private homes <laughs> I, I you know I can't really do it. anyway we got to the house and the door was open and there was some building work going on I think it's flats now and she said oh Rachel could we go I said well it's a private so I said I'll go and ask well the builder said Absolutely, don't worry. We went down, we knocked on the door of the downstairs flat where her grandparents lived. The family looked a bit bemused. They let us in and the, the grandma was just explaining to her family that this is where she used to come to see her grandparents. The family that lived there, a Bengali family, just thought we were a bit batty. 
but it made her tour. Oh. So you never know. You never know. And everything was still in the same place. You remember what the garden looked like and, you know, the, the layout. So. Amazing. Nothing like it. The, the memory yeah. for things as a yeah. child. And to get hold of you? Oh, to get hold of me? Oh, it's very easy. You can find me on the web. I'm www.golondontours.com. Go London Tours. Well, yeah. we shall be going on the London Tours. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you for inviting me along. Blue Plaque Guide, Rachel Kolsky, talking to Kate Fulton there about the latest offerings from Go London Tours. If you would like more information about tour dates and how you can book as well, then you can always go, as Rachel has just alluded to, to golondontours, all one word, dot com. In just a moment will be this week's Jewish Schmooze. A reminder that we now live stream the Schmooze every Thursday evening from 7pm British summertime. And that means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read out those comments as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now, a roof over our heads is one of those simple things in life we take a little too much for granted. It's probably not very often that we think of what it would be like if we didn't have a home to go to. Well, Sarit Gafan and her friend Jerry O'Regan have decided to do something to highlight homelessness. Sarit has written a song that she says was inspired by her Jewish upbringing in a bid to try and raise awareness and money for people living on the streets. Community reporter Diana Toman has been speaking to Sarit and Jerry about their work. And she started by asking Sarit whether she has experienced homelessness herself. I haven't actually been homeless, but I about a year ago I was experiencing a lot of housing challenges, let's just say. And it really highlighted to me how you can become completely dysfunctional as a human being when you haven't got a safe stable roof over your head so that sparked your how shall i put it your compassion as it were to the homelessness in yeah. london or elsewhere starting off in london right. um, we we do want this message to go as far as it will fly but uh, yes i mean I've, I've had links to the homeless before anyway because my grandma started off making sandwiches for the homeless through her synagogue Many, many years ago, yes. Right. <laughs> and Jerry, if I can call you that, what's your experience of homelessness, if any? Well, no, I have I've never luckily never been homeless, but I've always been very aware that people don't have a home and I felt kind of strongly when I see people on the street that they really shouldn't be there. So yeah. And you two were friends and both teachers or support teachers at the same school? Yeah, we work together. I'm a support teacher and Jerry works with children with special needs. Right, at the same school. Yes, right. Yes. Now, Sarita, I understand that you are actually already involved with raising funds for the homeless. What, what is it that you do apart from wonderful lyrics for a song? <laughs> it's actually sandwich making. It's called Club Sandwich. It's been running for seven years and we've been meeting monthly in a community centre in Boreham Wood, making about 150 sandwiches and giving them to a day centre in Watford. 
And what sparked this idea for this lovely song, which I, I listened to before I came here, which is really great. <laughs> oh, thank you so <laughs> thank much. You. It was sparked for me because I was just having one of those days when it felt like everything was going wrong, but actually what was happening was it was an opportunity for me to look at what was going right. And there was so much that was going right, and I just put pen to paper. And I swanned into school one day and handed these lyrics to Jerry, who, little did I know, is such an amazing composer. So you wrote the music, Jerry, and Siri wrote the words. That's another. That was another of my questions, actually. <laughs> yes. Where have you performed this lovely song? We've done it at our school talent show. There was about seven hundred and fifty people there, so that was quite a big thing. Um, we've actually done it on an underground train. <laughs> Yes, we have. Actually, someone with you. We have. Yes. Well, that's a captive audience, isn't it? Well, actually, they invited us. To be honest, invited us. Yeah, we we got yeah we got onto the tube one evening, and these two gentlemen were sat there. Jerry had her guitar, Mm. and they said, "Oh, are you going to play to us as well?" Because apparently somebody else had. So we said, "All right then." (laughs) And did you go around afterwards with with a hat? (laughs) We we went round with our text code. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Tell us a little about your thinking behind the name of the song. Make It Right was, I think it was the last words of the chorus, so we chose that one and then it's always been in our mind that it would be a gratitude song, so in brackets it's the gratitude song. What a nice thought, the gratitude song. The gratitude for your lives. For your Mm. basic needs being met um, every single day and the idea of making it right is you make someone else's life right in gratitude for your own being right. And the way one does that is not, unfortunately, just sandwiches, but but money as well. Yes, so it's donating to a charity called The Passage. Which has been going for a long time, hasn't it, The Passage? Well known. What do they provide for the... I gather it's a four-week course for the homeless once you've raised the money? What, what what actually happens once once you actually get in into their system, as it were? Well, they provide you with clothes to go to interviews, things like a mobile phone, so you can get messages from people, your bus fares, accommodation over that period while you're going for interviews, and hopefully at the end of it, you will they'll have found you a job. So you That's can fantastic. Yeah. And how much would that cost per person? It's six hundred and ten pounds, approximately. Six hundred and ten pounds yeah. doesn't sound all that much, does it? No, it's not actually, really. To change someone's no, life. To change <laughs> someone's life, absolutely. And how much have you managed to raise so far? Seven hundred and twenty-five pounds. Oh, so you've got we've got one, one yeah. and a half. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one and a half people so far. And how many are you hoping to raise? What are you hoping to raise for it? Three thousand and fifty pounds, which is very specific because it's it's far, we're going for five people to start with. And is there any criteria? I mean, how do you choose who the five people are? Well, we we won't be involved in choosing, but we right. we have spoken to the passage and they have agreed to put every single penny that we raise towards actually getting homeless people off the street and they've agreed to give us case studies of who we have helped so we'll actually be able to see the, the end the end of the process right and possibly follow it up i mean you, you'd like to know how these people fared once they've actually gone through the system presumably yeah i mean it'd be lovely to, to find out how they got on it would be amazing so it hopefully would. we'll do that 
Sarit Gaffan and Jerry O'Regan talking to Diana Toman there about their efforts to raise awareness and money for the homeless. For more information, visit justgiving.com forward slash make it right. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Phil Dave and me today is journalist Jenny Fraser and Rabbi Andrew Shaw. The subject today is based on what we heard earlier on in this programme. An online petition has been gathering momentum in a bid to prevent a controversial rabbi from entering the UK. Rabbi Yosef Mizrahi has been quoted as saying that those with Down syndrome are being punished for a former life. It's only one of the extraordinary things he's been saying, in fact. Even Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis has got involved in the issue by saying that the proposed UK visit would cause widespread offence and upset. However, our question is not about Rabbi Mizrahi himself, who is obviously not here to defend himself, although I would like to point out that numerous attempts were made to get him on the show, but at the time of recording he had yet to reply. It's a question of to what extent can religious beliefs excuse someone's point of view, no matter how outlandish. Rabbi Shaw, we have to start with you. How far do you believe religious views can take an individual before it runs the risk of causing offence? I think obviously in today's society, offence can happen very easily. But at the same time, I think as a religious leader or in any person of of religion, surely your job is to make sure that you're not offending people. And certainly, I think that we've got to be careful, of course, one man's terrorist, another man's freedom fighter, and sometimes what someone thinks is completely unoffensive would offend somebody else. But I think the bottom line, as I believe, as, as, as a Jew and as an Orthodox rabbi, is we've got to do everything we can as religious people to make sure we can live in any society with everybody. And that means you've got to be very careful. You're not offending people and not making statements that will be taken the wrong way and literally using religion as an excuse to say whatever you want. I think you've got to be very careful with what you say and how you say it. Jenny, you wrote a very fascinating article in Jewish News about what this rabbi is all about. What's your view? Well, I think that some of the views which he's expressed, if we heard those kind of sentiments from an extremist Muslim, for example, we would rightly be absolutely horrified. And I think that I find what what is really offensive about this is the, the using of religion as a cloak of respectability, if you like, to say, well, you know, if a rabbi said it, it must be fine. Well, it's not fine because bigotry and hatred, I don't think you can qualify them. And I think that it's not a matter of degree. And that, as Rabbi Shaw said, religious leaders have to be extremely careful what they say. But who would you say has justified it? You sort of say that you can't really use religiosity as an excuse to almost cloak something that could be deemed as bigotry. 
Or who would you say has justified it, who has said it's OK? Because I haven't seen one reaction so far from anybody that I've spoken to about this that has implied that I it's mean, OK. I mean, I think it's a very good point. I mean, you know, the religious Jewish world, I mean, I know the, the Novomsky Rebbe, who's a very uh, renowned Hasidic Rebbe in America, has come out completely against him and said it's appalling what he's been saying. Of course, Rabbi Mervis as well here, our chief rabbi. And again, I've yet to meet a, a rabbi, orthodox or not, who, who supports his views because what he's saying is, is basically, well, rubbish mostly and offensive and, and it's one thing to say something that maybe in Judaism that could be difficult to understand or could be potentially harmful that is actually based in in fact and based in Jewish tradition but a lot of what he's saying is is, is sensationalist and frankly not true but do you mind if I ask and just sort of playing a little bit of devil's advocate here how do we know that what he's saying is rubbish is it not just a case it might be hard to stomach I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with it nor I don't think anyone in this room does but at the same time, who are we to say that one man's belief, which he clearly does believe in, is rubbish? I know people who are actually, who are sort of, what, what would you call them, psychic, spiritualists, something like that, who make such comments. But I've never heard any of them ever say things as what I find quite honestly repulsive that he's been saying about children who are being born blind are being born blind because of something that they did in a previous life. This is totally anti-Jewish, isn't it? I mean, again, he's, he's certainly... I mean, there are ideas within the Jewish tradition of reincarnation. Hasidic Rebbe's have told stories. But certainly the, the claims he's making, I mean, some of the ones in terms of the fact that he, he criticises uh, Jewish women in the Shoah and the Holocaust for walking the gas chambers naked. I mean, that's not a statement that even deserves any kind of comment. But yet he's making it as a rabbi in front of Jewish people as if that's what the Torah says and what Judaism says. And that's, that is, that is, someone said to me when I, you know, about this issue, he's not only, uh, you know, upsetting and offensive, he's also dangerous because that's not what Judaism believes. And that's not what we want young people, students, and young people to hear from him. And he's, People flock to his, uh, his, his classes, and that's, that's very worrying. Phil, you said who's agreed with him, who's taken his remarks seriously. Well, I just think it's very disturbing to watch some of the filmed clips of him making these remarks and the audience response, which is, I, I regret to say, extremely positive. And they're applauding his remarks. He's not being challenged by anybody when he says those things. Now... You could be very cynical and say that he might be saying some of those things in order to get a response and perhaps he doesn't really believe them. At the moment, I don't see any evidence of that. The truth is as well, though, that we've got to bear in mind, I mean, as we've already said, that he's not here to defend himself. So I suppose it's not really fair to make it about him. But I go back to, again, who are we to question one's belief? Because I personally don't believe in reincarnation, so I'm not entirely sure where his idea of being punished for a former life comes from. Because my understanding is that as a people, we don't necessarily believe in reincarnation, but perhaps, Rabbi Shaw, you're prepared no, to No, as I said, there that. are, you know, again, there, there are different streams within the Jewish tradition, rationalist and, 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 and other traditions. Reincarnation does appear in, in, in various books, but again, it's one thing to believe in the concept but nothing to try and be, be a prophet and know exactly who's come back as what. That is, that is way beyond, I think, the mortal man. I did know a rabbi, a very fine rabbi. He was one of the greatest rabbis I've ever met, to be honest. And he believed in the Jewish form of reincarnation. He believed that Jews did choose sometimes to come back to another life, to make things better, to teach things more wisely. But it was the exact opposite 
to what he said. In a positive way, you mean? Oh, in a positive yes, way. Yes, I was going to say, who on earth would choose to do this all over again? My goodness. <laughs> well, I'm rather wondering who Rabbi Mizrahi might have been in a former life. <laughs> <laughs> but I, th- I think your point as well, in terms of the wider, not just about him, of course, we have the, the Chowdhury affair this week, which, of course, is a very similar thing of, of a hate preacher. And again, as I said, it's interesting, because I, I think the difference is, of course, Chowdhury's hate was towards actually asking to kill people, and, and Mizrahi's hate is, is about our people in terms of what happened to their lives, but both have so not of discord but I think what's important is to realize but in both cases eventually there has to be a, a sense of enough itself this is harmful to the public this is harmful to society this is actually not benefiting sort of anybody and I think that's where the two cases have a similarity because they're both very harmful to society obviously one physically and one maybe more spiritually what do you think our reactions would be I'm just talking about us around the studio now what do you think our reactions would be if he wasn't a rabbi and he was from another faith, do you think we'd be as bothered? Well, I, I hope that we would find the remarks as as hateful and repellent, but I do think that it's incumbent on us, first of all, to stand up and say, no, this man doesn't represent mainstream Judaism. And I must say, I'm extremely cheered to hear Rabbi Mervis and Rabbi Shaw condemning those kind of remarks and making it very clear that this is not what Orthodox Judaism would even entertain as any kind of acceptable viewpoints. I think that, you know, we very much need, as a community, we need our spiritual leaders to stamp on this kind of thing before some people might think it was acceptable. Well, yes. I mean, it is true that he obviously is saying things that people are taking an instant disliking to. I still stand by what I even said a little earlier on in this program, which was that as someone who is a rabbi, I've always been told that I have to respect a rabbi no matter what their view is. (laughs) But for you. Um, No, but in serious, I don't... I just don't feel right in questioning a rabbi. If that is his view, one would assume that he has looked into some scripture of some description, some writing that has made him believe this. And I don't feel it's my place to question why he believes this. If he does, I don't have to believe it. Would you not? I mean, I must say, having listened to him on clips over the years, that's not all what he says. He actually says some lovely stories and lovely teachings as well. But there are things he says, which we are quoting and, uh, and which I've read, which are beyond the pale. And I can categorically say it from a Jewish, religious, rabbinic point of view, as Rabbi Mervis has said, they are not within the gamut of, of sort of orthodox Jewish values. And that is according to you know the majority of rabbis worldwide, I would say. So the sort of good things that he's said, you've heard, you've heard of him saying these. Look, I mean, again, he, he's been involved in outreach and reaching out to non-religious Jews and trying to inspire them with, with ideas and, and, and stories and lessons. And, and some of that, is, I've heard bits of it, and some of it is very good, but he also obviously has another side to him, which sensationalizes and says his statements as well, which, again, it's, it's a methodology of education, I would say. It's to, to, through fear. If you, know, if you do this, you will have this tremendous punishment on you. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mode of education through, through fear. But there's no question that he said some things, which I've, I've heard and read, that are, you know, just nice ideas about Judaism. Do you think we're blaming the right person here? Because we're all obviously taking aim at Rabbi Mizrahi, yet at the same time, I wonder how much of a part, say, media has got to play for giving people such as Rabbi Mizrahi, such as Anjum Chowdhury, who we mentioned before, airtime and coverage. Because if they weren't in the media, 
then surely the masses wouldn't know about them. And we're now talking about him. <laughs> well, that's right. Blame the media, as usual. <laughs> I'm we, part of that media. I'm just asking the question because I know there are some people who think it. We get it in the neck. If you, if you want a defence of the media, we have a, a, a duty and a moral responsibility to highlight issues people should know about. This is one of them. Jenny, you've said absolutely the right thing to end this discussion because as a fellow journalist and broadcaster, I think you're absolutely right. And my thanks to our guests, journalist Jenny Fraser and Rabbi Andrew Shaw. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. It's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwarden Pillar Liberal Synagogue. This year seems to me the one of delving into obscure rites within our tradition, that in the past I have to admit to having glossed over as largely irrelevant to our time. Indeed, the rite of the beheaded heifer, that is an immature cow that is not born a calf, it's probably not on most congregants' wish lists for discussion when a parashah like Shoftim offers up such rich alternatives for exploration. Jobs for all good Jewish girls and boys in the law. Laws that serve some wonderful warnings against deviant to sorcery. But if you have the right yichas, all you budding magicians, some tricks were obviously allowed. Laws for those engaged in war, including not damaging fruit trees that evolved into our key environmental commandment, Baal Tashkit. Do not destroy. And the phrase that has motivated many a Jewish social activist, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tiridov, justice, justice shall you pursue. Yet at the back end of the parashah, we get this obscure right as to what to do when one finds a human corpse murdered by an unknown assailant. There follows a rule worthy of the quintessential summer games of croquet, cricket and bull, measuring the closest town to the corpse to identify in whose jurisdiction that following right falls. The breaking of a heifer's neck in an uncultivated place with flowing water, washing of the priest's hands, and their plea to the divine for absolution of collective guilt for an unsolved murder. All so Agatha Christie or Midsummer Murders. Yet this mysterious rite that sought to maintain the purity of the Israelites and their sacred relationship with God discomforted later generations. Could justice simply be served by literally washing one's hands of it. In the words of Nahama Leibovitz, responsibility for wrongdoing does not only lie with the perpetrator and even with the accessory. Lack of proper care and attention are also criminal. Whoever keeps to their own quiet corner and refuses to have anything to do with the evil world, who observes oppression and violence but does not stir to lift a finger in protest, cannot proclaim with a clear conscience that our hands have not shed this blood. Pick your issue. Reading the right of the beheaded heifer behoves us. When we witness an unsolved murder or injustice in our vicinity, whether it be on our TV screens, social media accounts or actually witnessed, let us act individually and collectively. 
Thank you to Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Lenny Crystal, Rachel Kolsky, Sarit Gaffan and Jerry O'Regan. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Jenny Fraser and Rabbi Andrew Shaw. And of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget to thank the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.